0: on the Changed podcast I'm talking to the co-author of international best-selling book Dealing with People You Can't Stand. He's a motivational speaker and trainer best known for his conscious communication expertise as well as his quick wit and sense of humor. He's also a naturopathic physician and in fact is the president of the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians. My guest is Dr. Rick Brinkman. I'm Aiden Nepom, and this is the Changed podcast. Hello, welcome. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for having me, Aiden.
0: (laughs) Uh, Joining me today is Dr. Rick Frankman. He's the co author and author of six McGraw-Hill books, including international bestseller Dealing with People You Can't Stand, Dealing with Relatives, Life by Design, Love Thy Customer. His latest McGraw-Hill book is Dealing with Meetings You Can't Stand, uh, Meet Less, Do More. He's a speaker, he's a father. Mm-hmm. He happens to be my neighbor and my cat sitter. It's Dr. Rick Brickman. <laughs> hey, meow
1: to the to the crew. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but so, tell me a little bit about you. You're not just an author and a speaker. You also do other stuff. You're heavily involved with the AANP. You, uh, which I don't know if you want to talk about that.
1: Well, yeah, the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians. I am yeah. a naturopathic physician, and part of my uh, story that we'll tell today is how that came about through a bunch of pivotal moments.
0: That's very cool. That's very Mm -hmm. cool. And, um, I know that some people are familiar with naturopathy, probably a lot of folks who are interested in this, um, podcast potentially know what that is. And then also it might equally be true that people who are interested in this podcast have no idea yeah, for is. sure.
1: Well, when I first ran into naturopath, I thought it was a trail in the national forest. But <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll get to that in my story. But a naturopathic physician goes to a four-year medical school, uh, trained in all the same diagnostic and science as any medical program. But when it's time to get therapeutic, instead of spending as much time on pharmacology and surgery, you will be required to take four years of clinical nutrition. You'll be required to take psychology and counseling so you can influence people to make changes that are good for them. You can be required to take botanical medicine, Chinese medicine, and well, all of a sudden done, you're licensed by the state as a general practice primary care physician. <laughs> as of this recording in 2020, uh, There are 22 states that uh, license naturopathic physicians. New ones tend to come on board every year. Uh, Last year was uh, Idaho and New Mexico. The year before was Rhode Island and Massachusetts. And I mean, let's face it, um, according to the CDC, seven out of 10 Americans are dying from chronic preventable disease. That means disease we know how to prevent with lifestyle changes, but the medical system is not built to for lifestyle changes. It's when you're already sick, then they prop you up again. Right. And uh, I mean, when, well, so naturopathic medicine really focuses first on prevention. And then if you're already down the road on health restoration, and then ultimately on optimal wellness, how good can you feel? How much energy can, can you have? And that's, that's what naturopathic medicine is all about.
0: Well, since my dad also happens to be a naturopathic physician, uh, I personally have grown up in this health paradigm. And so to me, it just feels as natural as natural can be. And I don't mean natural as natural can be in a punny way, just to be (laughs) be clear. Um, But I get pushback from folks when I tell them my general practitioner is a naturopathic physician. I get pushback Mm -hmm. on that. And at That'd the be- same time, I feel like I've been helped through all kinds of things that have cropped up over the years in really significant ways that didn't require require pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. um, around digestive issues and arthritis and all kinds of stuff that has cropped up because I'm a human and stuff happens and you have to shift and change mm-hmm. get mm-hmm. older. <laughs> at least that <laughs> seems to be the case.
1: Yeah. And I, I kind of know you're uh, naturopathic doctor dad is we met in naturopathic <laughs> school and uh we wrote the dealing with people who can't stand together and our whole seminars together and
0: so yeah you know. so you know maybe it's cheating to have you on as a guest because i consider you also family yeah uh-huh. but I wanted to have you on here because I think that your perspective is really interesting. You and my dad have always been fascinating to me because of your similarities and your differences. And, uh, you know, I feel like I already understand how he deals with change pretty well. Mm. And I'll have him on for an episode as well to give his perspective. Cause how could I not? He's the, yeah, right. he's uh-huh. uh he built the art of change, which is now my company. So how could mm-hmm. I not have him on? Mm-hmm. Um, but because of my fascination with your differences, I was super curious how you think about this big fat word change, which means so many different things to so many people. Um, mm-hmm. like how do you, how do you define change when you think about it? What does that even mean to you?
1: Well, for me, it's always been uh an, an intuitive knowing. Well, first of all, uh, both my parents are Auschwitz survivors, and uh, were in the ghetto together. Sent to Auschwitz, survived through multiple miracles, and actually found each other after the war. So I kind of had ingrained in my psyche anything is possible,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and there's a level of you got to go with whatever's going on. Uh, so, in in this story that I want to tell, I would say when I was 16 years old, uh, I went to the movies with my mother and her good friend, Margaret, who was our neighbor. And the movie we saw was Cactus Flower, and that was Goldie Hawn's debut. And it was Walter Matthau, and it was Ingrid Bergman. Walter Matthau, I believe, was a dentist. Ingrid Bergman was his receptionist, and he's running out to have an affair with Goldie Hawn. And uh, when I came out, out of that movie, I just knew I wanted to be a doctor. Now on the surface, I thought, because I want to be the boss, I can run out and have an affair with Goldie Hawn. I don't have to explain myself. (laughs) Just (laughs) handle all my calls, change my appointments. (laughs) So that was kind of superficial. (laughs) But I don't think it was really that. It was just this inherent knowing. Okay, so fast forward, and I go to uh, State University of New York, and I'm in pre med program. And uh, I was my first year. I'm looking at some of the courses in the catalog, and there's one that really interests me. It was called "Dictators, Demagogues, and Extremists: How do How do people like um, Mussolini, like Hitler, like Roosevelt have such an influence and make such a difference on on history? And I thought, oh, I'd really want to do that. And then I read, oh, you have to do a class. You actually have to. pick somebody and do a whole class presentation i'm like "Ah, i'm not doing that i get in front of that group i I believe the book of lists says uh uh the number one uh fear is uh speaking in front of groups number two is being burned alive so you know oh wow pass the gas can and the matches but i'm not getting up there right okay (laughs) so so now fast forward to my junior ish year just like when I walked out of that movie theater, and I knew I had to be a doctor. I just one day knew I had to learn how to speak in front of groups. Huh. I I didn't know why, so I looked at the catalog and I started making sure I took classes that required me to do that. And the first was one was an anthropology class, and it was a it was in one of those Ira's big uh, auditoriums. So there's like a hundred people in the class or whatever, and you got an assignment for one group of people and you had almost like a cliff notes type book. It was that thin and that paperback that explained everything about them. And you had to do a a report in front of them. So I remember when I I did this one, very obscure tribe somewhere in South America that I'd never heard of before. And uh, I was wearing my overalls because I could feel really comfortable then. And I had my hands in here and I went through the presentation and this tribe was kind of strange because Uh, They didn't really have any religion. They didn't really have a lot of rituals. They didn't really have artwork. Hmm. They didn't really make pots or pictures. I mean, when you went down the list, they were like nothing. And I said the only ritual they actually have is that when your sister goes out with her first boyfriend, you need to beat up the boyfriend. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And the whole place broke up in in laughter. (laughs) And I wasn't trying to be funny. That was true with this tribe. (laughs) That was the only thing they did that was like consistent. And when I felt that relief in the room, I also knew that I had to learn about comedy and that comedy is the the secret for everybody to be comfortable. So that was a pivotal moment. So now we fast forward and I graduate and, you know, I went straight through from kindergarten all the way through uh, college nonstop. And I just kind of ah, had enough. I mean, I was a good student in that I never caused trouble. I just kept my head down and get my stuff done. I wasn't the perfect A student because I would really slack off, but I could easily get B's or B pluses without trying, that, you know. OK, so but I needed a break. I, uh, and so this was 1976 and I heard a rumor there was something west of Jersey. So I decided to get a van and go on an open ended cross country trip. And I had no necessary end point. It was with my girlfriend at the time. We had enough money and, uh, we decided to start our trip in Vermont, uh, at the home of her former roommate who was always a really good buddy of mine. We, We had a sister brother relationship. She'd call me brother. I always call her sister and such. But one of the reasons not only to see Catherine was that, uh, I decided we would register their car in Vermont because then we didn't have to pay the New York City sales tax oh, when we bought when we bought the van. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that was the evil plan. All right. So we're in Vermont and all of a sudden I wake up and I have one of those moments. And I said, you know. We're going to go cross country. People are going to look at our license plate. They're going to say, oh, you're from Vermont. And we'll have to explain. No, actually, we're just kind of cheap New Yorkers trying to beat the state out of sales tax. <laughs> <laughs> we got to be New Yorkers. We're going in New York. Let's pay the money. So we go across the border to, I don't know, it's Plattsburgh or what's right across the border from Vermont to the DMV in New York. And turns out we don't have to pay money because that's a point of sale. But we get our New York plates. Okay. Small thing that turns to be a big thing. So now we fast forward. So it's now three and a half months and 17,000 miles later. I'm in what I think is Eugene, Oregon. And (laughs) I mean, I'll never forget the first time I saw the Pacific ocean, La Jolla, (laughs) California. <laughs> I, I was in Alaska when I first started doing speaking. There was a lot of Indian names up there. I did not want to offend anybody, so as soon as I got into town, I went to a restaurant. I said, "Can you specifically pronounce where I am?" The lady <laughs> said, "Sure, Burger King." <laughs> <laughs> was, we're Thai in Alaska, but okay. So, so I'm, I'm in this park uh, in Eugene, Oregon, and well, what's funny is in Oregon, I was told five minutes across the border, I was told how to pronounce it correctly, but I'm in a park and I'm frying up some wok vegetables, and a guy comes up to me. Because he sees my New York plates, and he's from New York, and we start talking about you know natural foods and stuff. I had already gone through a revolution where I realized everything in the supermarket isn't good for me, and I went to raw foods and and juicing and all this kind of stuff. And you know we had all that kind of stuff on the road with us. We were all creating all our own meals, all out of real food. So. He tells me about naturopathic medicine, and I had never heard of that before. And he says, yeah, there's a school that's in Portland. Uh, I go, wow, maybe I should check that out. We weren't going to go to Portland. We were planning on heading to the coast and going up the Oregon coast. Well, no, we'll go to Portland. We'll check it out the next day. So I arrive in Portland, and I... Go to the school, and uh, they say, "Who are you?" And you know, I'm kind of real scruffy. I mean, I've been on the road for three and a half months, living in <laughs> my van. Right? I can only
0: imagine the <laughs> yeah. amount of facial hair and, yes, and, exactly. and hair in general. Oh, oh just, yeah, my hair was like your out huge there curly in, hair in the '70s. <laughs>
1: okay, so uh, they say, "Oh, well, like, let's get you Steve Sandberg Lewis because he was from New York, so they figured he could relate to me." And he's taking me on this tour and telling me about this, and I can't believe it. It's like seems perfect it's exactly i mean it's the it's the crossroads of all that health and uh, diet that i've been paying attention to and at the same time medicine and prevention and and wellness but i'm thinking i'm from new york i never heard of this before it's got to be bullshit how can this be you know right <laughs> if i didn't hear of it i know everything
0: i'm from new york <laughs> I think that but, still per- persists that, yes, that Only exactly. it's specific to literally every state. It's like, I'm from Nebraska. I never heard of that. That can't yeah. be a thing. <laughs>
1: right. Everybody's got their own level of arrogance. About something. Right? Okay. So, but the weird thing is everybody is so real and making such eye contact and so present as beings that at the end of the tour, I'm standing there and I'm, I'm left with, Two F's in each hands. One is the New York. This this is either really in fortuitous or this is really flaky. <laughs> so what which is it going to be? <laughs> and then this guy runs by and he stops and he was like on a mission. He was like going someplace, but he stopped. And then he just looked at me like this and grinned. And when I looked into his eyes, I knew this is for real. And <sighs> they tell me, oh, you know what? It turns out there's one space in the class. Somebody is not showing up. And you could fill that space, but classes start next week in five days.
0: Whoa. Yeah. That's a and, real like you gotta do this or don't do this. It moment. was a
1: moment it was a moment of now. And uh, I just had that intuition again. No, this is this is real and this is what I'm doing. And you know, I was totally free to go wherever I want, to so turn around the van went to Kansas and five days later was, was in class.
0: Wow. Mm -hmm. That is so cool.
1: Yeah. A date with destiny. And I know the person whose eyes I looked into, he's a very good friend uh, now and naturopathic doctor, Noel Peterson.
0: No, (laughs) I know know Noel as well. Yeah. Uh (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's so cool.
1: So that led to everything. And then, you know, uh, when I met your dad, he was in the class behind me. And we just somehow also had some, some kind of connection. Not just we were both named Rick or, or whatever. And I was uh, again in the mode. We the, it was in Wichita, Kansas. Okay, so uh, the nature path school put on a dinner for the public, and with all kinds of interesting foods, raw foods, and, and different grains that they may never tried before. We would do this whole menu, and I became in charge of the dinner because my father owned the discotheque and restaurant, So, and I had worked there, so I had some little bit of knowledge. Comparative. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then I also wanted to uh, do, you got to speak, and that's what I really wanted to do. You got to talk to everybody at the dinner. I was still in that mode of volu- volunteering. I wasn't totally out of fear yet. But I was moving in that direction and knowing I got to keep moving in that direction for some reason. Uh, and uh, so your dad invited me over to the house because his wife and uh, your mother was a really gourmet, natural cook. And I remember she had carrots, natuki, and some other cool things that, that were possibilities for the dinner. And that's Did how. Did she
0: make Laney burgers?
1: Oh, I don't think I had a Laney burger. Laney burgers were amazing.
0: Oh. They had like mushrooms and lentils and rice, and they are so mm. good. Mm. She doesn't oh, yeah. remember how to make them. Oh no! <laughs> <know>.
1: oh, <laughs> well, so that was great. That's how we uh, uh, we started, and then uh, here, what would happen? Strangely, was back then uh, the first two years of classes were in Wichita, Kansas, and then the next two years were in Portland, Oregon, which was much more clinical. That was a brief period when the school was divided. So you kind of knew people right in the class ahead of you and behind you. Then. You and they disappeared from each other's lives for a year, and then you got reunited uh, again. So, uh, so now, if we fast forward to when I'm a senior and your your dad's a junior, and uh, they ask your father to go on this town hall program, they being the administration of the school, it's something about health and wellness, and he goes on on this town hall program, and there's a medical doctor who sees him and has some level of moment recognition that hey we need to talk. And it turns out he used to be head of OBGYN at St. Vincent's hospital. And he went through a real awakening. Uh, and he, he would tell us the symptom is a metaphor for what's going on. If somebody has uterine bleeding, you should ask him if those were teardrops. What do you think he would be crying about? Wow. And yeah. That changes his practice completely. His colleagues bring him up on charges of being insane. He was cleared of those, but it really, change where he was doing more counseling uh, on symptoms than he was doing surgery. So he wanted uh, your dad to be his assistant and such, but your dad says, well, no, I got one more year of school, but I got a friend Brinkman here who's graduating in a month and maybe he'd be interested. (laughs) So that's how we connect. And then he gave us a book list and on that list were something we never heard before NLP books Mm-hmm. linguistic programming. And we read all those books really fast. And then you, what would happen is you'd go in on pa- with patients and a senior would always pick a junior. And you technically weren't supposed to go in with the same person every time. There was also a rotation, but you, me and your dad always kind of worked the system and I got him to go in <laughs> with me <laughs> so we could start experimenting on people. And we started uh, digging deeper and deeper. And I remember we had this uh, young woman, I think she was 22 and she had a class four pap and uh, she came up from Stanford medical. Cause they wanted to just do a hysterectomy. And she was,
0: what is a sleep. class? What
1: is a class it uh, There's classes in terms of how bad it, how bad it is. So this the is class four is
0: severe. Far,
1: yes. Yeah. They're ready to hysterectomy time.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, so she was looking for something else possible. And so we started, prying into her life, although we didn't pry, friends pry, health professionals probe, but (laughs) we're asking a question like, how do you feel about yourself as a woman and what's going on in your relationships? And, you know, she just had a relationship that ended. And then we, so we're digging into all these personal, uh, emotional things. And then we're doing certain counseling things with her. And long story short, four weeks later, her path was normal. Wow. And we got what's known in the medical business as a major case of trout mouth when you look like this.
0: I just made that face. I just literally made that face.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's trout mouth. And so I'm counseling more and more people. I remember I had a a woman um, who had arthritis. She tried everything I've ever heard of, whether it was traditional or alternative, as it was called back then, now being politely called complimentary and uh, nothing really worked. So again, I'm thinking, oh, nothing else has worked. So what do I got to lose? I'll pry into her life. So I find her husband works for the federal government. So he's flying back and forth to Washington, D.C. each week. She's hated that job for 20 years, but doesn't express it at all because she wants to support him. When minor upsets would occur, she wouldn't deal with it because they only had two days a week together. So she would suppress her feelings about that. Uh, he was supposed to take an early retirement. He decided against that on his own. She suppressed her feelings about that too. Now, if you suppress too much somebody you care about, it'll build up a barrier between the two of you.
0: Yeah. My
1: entire prescription her is mm-hmm. to teach her how you share upset without the other person feeling attacked. She did this, and 30 days later, her symptoms are gone.
0: And That's they incredible. stayed gone.
1: I had a guy who was depressed. He'd been through two years of psychoanalysis. At the end of two years of analysis, the analysis was, you're depressed. Okay? <laughs> He said, I know. (laughs) That's what I came with. Take this medication. So now he's more depressed because, first of all, the medication really wasn't working for him. But secondly, he didn't realize he was violating the personal value by being on medication, the value of health. So I started digging into his life. Well, what's going on for you now? And he says, dead end job, going nowhere. I ask, well, what about your past? He goes, "Uh, filled with failure. I say, what about the future? He says, more of the same coming. Pretty depressing, huh? Yeah. For your viewers, here's a quick tip to bum yourself out in case you ever get too happy. (laughs) Pick pick something in your present that you hate and see it keep going forever in your future. (laughs) You will immediately feel bad. Drain your energy. Well, with him, I had him clarify his values. We set some goals. We broke those goals down into specific action steps. We did a little internal tune-up of the self-esteem. Two months later quits his dead end job, starts his own business, depression is history. So that was the f- a first major uh major change. Wow. In my history as well as your your dad's history.
0: And that cha- I mean, if I'm not mistaken, those moments changed everything for you guys moving forward.
1: Yes, they did. They absolutely did. And in fact, then uh our uh when I graduated the um founders of NLP, Richard Bandler and John Grinder, were doing a, a, a an in-house live-in 21-day NLP training. They kind of rented part of the University of Santa Cruz during the summer, and you went down there for 21 days, and nine hours a day, you were doing stuff. You had a presentation, but then you had an assignment to go out in the world and do some kind of thing. Uh, and... That was really, there was another fortuitous thing here because they had different tracks. Okay. So they had uh, an advanced and I believe a medium and a beginner track. Now, because we had never done a seminar with them, they put us in the beginner track. That was, you never did a seminar with us. You're in the beginner track. We were not beginners, (laughs) <laughs> we were like super advanced <laughs> with this kind of stuff because a lot of them were therapists. So they're learning things, but they all have their own way of doing therapy already and they're trying to integrate this. Whereas this is like, for us, it was, yeah, this is it. <laughs> we know this stuff works. <laughs> We've been, so what was really perfect about that is we were able to see how they were programming us, what they did in front of the group. Oh, yeah. How, on that level to really install this in us. And I mean, we both became professional speakers and that was like the beginning of it. And so when we came back from that uh, seminar and the next uh, school year started, all our all our colleagues knew what we were doing, okay? They were shunting us, all the hopeless patients, which was really convenient because everybody's tried everything else already. They've checked all the boxes, right? It's right. traditional medicine and naturopathic medicine. So all we had to do was go, just go yeehaw, we got nothing to lose, but that we did a class and we did a... a I believe it was two or three hours on a Monday night and we did t- 10 weeks to teach them those, those skills. And that was the first, uh, that was the first seminar we ever did that led, led to everything else.
0: Was that the magical nature of communication?
1: That was the magical nature of communication. Our first program. Yeah.
0: I'll have to share an image from the, I have, I have a poster uh, image from the magical nature of communication. Oh, wow. um, it's, you know, it's like on a, you know, when you guys used to have, basically like take it to a print shop and have them oh, made yeah. right so it's like it's it's pretty it be, pretty it cool looking. Hand, it,
1: it might be hand drawn your your father was the artist in our group it, and it might be hand, yeah he would draw the uh things and we would hand write the flyer I mean, yeah <laughs> it looks
0: a, it looks stenciled yeah it's it, like yeah. the writing looks stenciled it's very oh, like cool.
1: the ones they're old rub-on style
0: yeah 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 yeah
1: that's when looks- we got more sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> First, we were just writing it. So but yeah, that's so- 1980. You didn't have, you know, a computer, you didn't have desktop publishing. Right.
0: I mean, I remember, yeah. you know, technology changes. I remember um, my dad having to collect all of his transparencies to take on a speaking trip. He had like a binder yes. with the transparencies for a program so that he could put them up on the slide on the,
1: uh, yeah. uh, projector
0: in the right order. Yeah. Um, including the blank ones where you're going to write stuff. And you were writing stuff on the printed ones anyway. And
1: yeah, and I yeah. remember
0: all that. It was a very cool time. Now it's all this, you know, fancy stuff with computers.
1: Yeah, um, the projection and death by PowerPoint.
0: Yeah, now but people we, now that people have that problem where there's too much information on screen because it's so easy to put it there. Uh-huh. Well, so um so I first of all, thank you for sharing all of that history. That is so cool to hear. And the stories from the patients that were so um I think the piece of the story growing up that I didn't have, that was so cool to hear was that these were the like lost causes. These are the people who had already tried everything. And I mean, mm-hmm. it was like, dude, we don't know. And
1: yeah. then you
0: guys were like, what a cool opportunity to try something yeah. unusual and different and just see what's hap- what happens. So to me, that was like, that's a, a pivotal thing right there. A lot of people um, would, would be like, why are you, Lost causes kind of mm-hmm. loose. And you mm. guys said, oh, they're lost causes. We got nothing to lose. Yeah. Um, right. It's a really important distinction. It's really cool. It, it makes me wonder about, in general, like how do you feel about big, big changes, little changes? Like you were like, even the license plate piece of your story was a little thing that turned into a big thing. So, again, yeah, what, I guess what I'm asking, thinking out loud, I'm just reacting. Yeah. <laughs> I, guess what I'm, I guess what I'm asking is, you know, like generally speaking, how do you feel about change in general? Like, do you have a real like broad change is good, change is bad? I'm the I'm the captain of my own change ship. Uh I gotta roll with the changes and see what comes. Like, where do you what how would you define your own relationship to change?
1: Well, I would say uh, it reminds me of a, a part of the routine your dad would always do. He would uh, uh, say gravity, okay? I don't like gravity. Oh, I don't no. believe in gravity. <laughs> <laughs> and why is this happening? <laughs> and uh, then he would follow up with, you can wish in one hand and spit in another. Guess which one fills up first. <laughs> <laughs> and so resistance to change is insane because it's changing. It's changing around you, and all you can do is go with the uh, the flow and make your your best uh, choices. Now,
0: I love that. It also is a great reminder uh, to the piece that he would do with me with that with the gravity piece, uh, letting uh-huh. the thing fall. Is you'd follow it up with, oh well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh
1: so well, as a way of like, yeah, uh- I don't
0: like it. Oh, well, (laughs) Uh, which is a great reminder for me Um, because generally speaking, I I actually, I kind of dig change. I find there's opportunity to be had everywhere. This is probably not a surprise being raised in the environment that I was raised, Mm -hmm. Um, but that things show up. There's opportunity, like most of my life. uh, I just gave a TEDx talk last summer where I shared the, basically this pivotal moment where I had a conversation with my dad that changed the trajectory for me. But up until that point, I wouldn't look back and say I was living a bad life. I was living Mm -hmm. a great life. It just was a life, you know, devoid of purpose. I was Mm. literally just going with the flow and just seeing where that took me. And it took Mm -hmm. me to a lot of great places. Mm -hmm. Um, But the risk and reward piece of it was, well, what happens if I try and make some choices on my own? (laughs) Like what Mm. happens if I, do something and then see where that takes me as mm-hmm. opposed to something takes me somewhere. And then I see what I think about it. Uh, it's a little distinction, but it's made a big difference for me. Yeah. But um, it sounds like there was a mix of that in your story where it's a little bit like, I knew there was a thing I wanted. And then life sort of guided me along the way sort of what it sounds like. But there were these moments where your interpretation of what that might look like just kept changing.
1: Yeah. There's a moment of recognition there. I mean, even when I, you know, in doing like 4,000 programs in 18 countries and let's face it, I've, faced blizzards and thunderstorms and so yeah. forth and so on. And you know, it's first, okay, this is canceled. This is, and then my first surprise, <laughs> <laughs> And then I'm like, all right, no way, I'm getting there. I'm going to get there. And I have remember being in uh, DC that DC had been closed because of this big blizzard. And uh, you and know, your dad and I would always go down to Macworld, but I had to leave Macworld and to fly to DC for a seminar. And, and there was a three day opening. And I went there and I did my seminar. And now I'm at at the uh, airport and the blizzard is coming again and this is supposed to be twice as bad as what just happened. And you know, the flight is delayed 10 minutes. Okay. The flight is delayed 20 minutes. And uh, you've traveled up to the writing on the wall and this is not going to end
0: good. (laughs) (laughs) You're going on another day. Yeah. (laughs) yeah,
1: So I'm thinking I want to get back to San Francisco and I don't want to be stuck here for a week in the blizzard. And I hear last call for boarding for Dallas and I run to that gate and I say, can I get on this plane? And they're like, well, yeah, sure. We have a seat. In fact, based on your status, you can go first class. Now, I had no idea what was going to happen next, but I knew I was not going to be in a blizzard in Dallas. Wow.
0: So that was already
1: a step ahead of the thing. And then I get out of the um, plane in Dallas. I'm like, okay, I got to figure out what the next step is. And I look at the board and I see San Francisco, gate 34, and it's right next to me, right there, the the flight to San Francisco. (laughs) And that I have found that more often than not, I have whether I've driven all night or driven through the blizzard, I've gotten to my gig, and that flashes back. I remember when I was uh, in grade school. I read the Hardy Boys. I was Mm really the Hardy Boys, and there was one time they were they were tailing a suspect who then jumped on the train, and they jumped on the train, and they had no idea where the train was going. Yeah, and I thought that was so cool. I even now then then you did your
0: own version of it.
1: Yeah, I did. That was, yes.
0: (laughs) Well, so it sounds to me like you have a internal compass that you trust and you let, you've let your intuition guide you in moments where things could be a fork in the road is what it sounds like. And it sounds like you don't consciously make that choice, that that just happens.
1: Yeah. But there's, uh, there's something about it that I, I recognize this is one of those moments. Well, you know, I got to Portland, so you had the weird thing where you knew the class ahead of you and then they disappeared. So, you know, and, and because it was just basic science in Wichita, Portland was the other side of the rainbow, you know, for when you're really going to get clinical. So I, I finally get there and I get to the clinic and I run inside and it's closed. Not, (laughs) not, not the door locked closed, but not open for patients. It was Saturday or whatever. And then, uh, There's Catherine Downey who's coming down the hall and she's uh, in the class ahead of me and she was a buddy of mine and she was on work study and her job was to clean up the clinic. And she says, Oh, you know, you can come stay at my house. We have this, you know, um, group household. There's six of us who live there, but we always have visitors and stuff. And I said, Well, I don't need to stay inside. I'm totally self sufficient in my van, but it'd be nice to use your bathroom and such. So yeah, I'll come over. And then so I'm there and she's introducing me to all her housemates and uh, she said, we have one more. And then she hears coming up the stairs from the basement. Ah, here she is now. This is Lisa. And I looked at her and she looked at me and we both went, we did this double take. And I heard a voice as clear as day as if somebody was whispering in my ear, are these the eyes you're going to look into for so many years?
0: Oh, and, wow.
1: and And she also had that moment. And then I thought, nah, here you are, you're already on the make, you just got to Portland for two, two hours, and you're already checking out this, and she also was like, ah, oh, man, this guy must be slick, or something like that, but long story short, we were married five months later, and it's been 40 years.
0: That's incredible. So I I wonder, if so if we we're going to generalize out from your experience, which I'm a really big fan of doing, <laughs> uh-huh. I, I like to just wildly, I think this is an equally human instinct to just like wildly generalize from a limited sample. Um, so wildly generalizing to me, it seems like there's an advocacy here around intuition, uh, around Mm. like really trusting that intuition through these moments where there could be a pivot that you might not necessarily recognize, but to sort of like be open to recognizing those moments. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I know there is for me, I don't know if everybody has it, or maybe they're just not tuned into it, or I really don't know. Cause I haven't yeah. really done a study of it. but I've learned to come to recognize those moments for me, for sure. I,
0: I think everybody has it and people ignore it. I would it. think so.
1: Yeah. I
0: think people ignore it. Um you know we are in a current time where people are having to rapidly pivot like daily things mm-hmm. are happening that are are shifting and changing our view of what's possible, our view of what's uh you know, but there's just a lot there's a lot, and I myself am rapidly going through emotional reactions to what's happening. Um, we're recording at the end of March here, and so march of twenty twenty I think the context of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The pandemic is is pretty clear. Um, but people's experiences around this uh, are are as varied as possible but I had a my own moment of like intuition a few weeks ago when we were going to I guess a week ago so we still have a week to write it out before we're in the clear but um, you know where we were getting ready to go to New York to perform in a festival and I had this like Really loud intuition about that, where I was like, this does not seem like a good idea. Mm. And my husband and I had a, a real heart to heart about it. We were like, let's really examine why we're going and if it's a good idea to go. And in the end, he was just going to go for it, whether I went or not. And I thought, well, he's, he's going to get exposed to something. I'm going to get exposed to it when he comes home. So I might mm. as well have the adventure and see what happens and trust yes. that it's going to be okay. But I had that still that, like, something's not going to turn out the way we would want it to. And when we got there, uh, within a day, the festival was canceled and Broadway shut down. And I basically was like the, the mm. loud intuition was like screaming in my ears run for the hills at this point because it was like mm. all these doors were closing mm-hmm. um but I just rebooked our tickets we left the next day instead of staying until following you know like when we were supposed to go and mm. we'd been yeah. home and uh immediately when I made that choice that that loudness disappeared it was like okay you made the good job <laughs> go mm-hmm. home be yeah. in the sunshine. Uh-huh. Oregon's going to yeah. have some sunshine. Go get it. You know, it was like, <laughs> so, you know, there's this thing for me where I've, I've always grown up with this idea that, that you trust those. It's not, it's not even a voice for me. It's a, it's just a loud knowing. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's a quiet knowing. And in the moments where I've ignored it, it still has worked out for me because I'm looking for these other, you know, but uh-huh. I'm hyper aware of, well, that was a moment where I ignored it. So, you know, I, So maybe I, for
1: people the trick is to think about some pivotal moments in your life and what, was there something you remember would like for you? Yeah. You describe it as loud. For me, there's a, just a feeling, a body thing, something.
0: Yeah. It's like a, it's hard to explain really because it's not, I, so every once in a while, I guess there's like, a, it feels like there's a, a voice, there's like a sentence that shows up, but I'm a person who thinks in words 50% of the time. Uh-huh. Uh, and the other t- percentage is feelings or pictures. So I, I'm sort of all over the place. Some people don't think in words ever. Mm. Do you think in words?
1: I don't know. Like, I, I literally
0: will hear sentences. I'll be like, this food tastes delicious. I like this food as a sentence. Yes. And then sometimes I'm just very present and it's, I just feel the sensation of eating the food. I I think
1: so. Uh, I definitely have a very in, highly developed internal s- state. I can go into a, a fantasy and be there and start making movements. And my wife will say, all right, don't mind me. Just talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> but I do have that internal. But maybe it was being an only child, and I played by myself. I of course I have friends and everything, but I really oh, yeah. it had my own thing. Uh, so
0: I never thought about that. I also mm-hmm. was an only child. Maybe there's something there. There. Yeah. Um, well, in any case, it does seem to me like it would be a cool thing for people to do that to like do this think about a pivotal moment what were the yeah what were your instincts and feelings at that time what were those intuitions that showed up and how how do you think that influenced the outcome well so uh to close things out here today i'd be curious if you have like a final thought that you wanted to share or like a a quote that guides you or
1: yes life is not a test it's an actual emergency (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic dr rick brinkman uncle spock kitty brinkman as we call uh, you in my family uh, <laughs> thank you so much for spending time with me today talking about uh change and sharing uh, st- this broad story with it's like lots of little stories about changes yeah, that you've experienced that was it was so cool so much to fun to yeah, it.
1: and to see you i remember at one naturopathic party you know how at a, to at a party uh, everybody has there's a bed with all the coats on it, and yeah. you were you were on it with all the coats, and you were as big as my laptop right now You were <laughs> with all the coats. <laughs>
0: uh, so now I'm much taller. Yes,
1: <laughs> you can stand up and everything.
0: <laughs> I do. I walk all by myself. It's really cool. <laughs> uh, well, it has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. About what change means, we often neglect the importance of our intuition at these fork in the road moments. In listening to Rick, I'm reminded of countless memories where I walked into a building or had a conversation and experienced what I refer to as a loud sense of knowing that I'm either on the right track or the wrong path. To trust your intuition as a guide requires not just listening for it, but also following that guidance. I believe that when we choose to ignore our inner compass, it leads to dissatisfaction, self-blame, and misery. I can think of many examples where friends or loved ones shared with me that they knew the moment was ripe yesterday, but failed to take action on that dream or plan and then missed their moment and regretted it. In improv theater, we study the fundamental skill or principle of having a willingness to be changed. And I think this principle serves as an excellent description of what action is needed to let intuition be our guiding force, because to let intuition guide, you've got to have a willingness to shift and change in the moment, much like Rick's brief story of hopping on a different flight to ensure that he made it out of a blizzard in D.C. So what about you? Do you trust intuition? Do you listen to the voices or instincts that show up for you from time to time? what would happen if you did? You've been listening to The Changed Podcast. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and rate this podcast wherever you're enjoying our content. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. You can visit us anytime on the web at www.thechangedpodcast.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Aidan Nepom, and I wish you the kind of moments in life that you're excited to tell stories about.